Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, today's guest is one of the most creative people that I've ever met. Not only has he had a successful career um, as a magician, stage magician and working in um, Hollywood, but he is also an accomplished thriller writer. Andrew Maine was the star of Annie's magic reality show, Don't Trust Andrew Maine. He's a magician, illusion designer, filmmaker, and novelist. Having written and produced over 50 books, DVDs, and manuscripts on magic, he's considered one of the most prolific magic creators of the last decade. He has worked with David Copperfield, Penn & Teller, and David Blaine. He lives and works and writes in Los Angeles. In addition, over the last few years, Andrew has pursued another passion and taken pen to page and started to write best-selling thrillers. His books are getting rave reviews from Publishers Weekly and others and have been finalists for an Edgar Award and an International Thriller Writers Award. So, Andrew, I'm honored that you're here. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, man, uh, Stephen, that's very, very kind of you to say that. And, you know, coming from you, that means a lot to me. And uh, I hope to live up to some of the things that were said. Maybe they're, you know, I stretched some of those things in my bio, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, for anyone listening, I don't know if they've ever heard of the Magic Castle, but I know last year my wife and I were in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and uh, you helped arrange a visit for us to the Magic Castle, and it was one of the highlights of the year. So I just wanted to thank you once again for helping us work that out. It was it was really fun. We had a great time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Magic Castle's a very neat experience. For those of you who never heard of it, it's a it's a private club in the middle of Hollywood that's I, kind of like Hogwarts meets a country club kind of environment, or it's you know a bunch of different every night, different rooms, different magicians performing, and uh, it's still a bar. So it's a very interesting environment. So it was, it was great to be able to take you there and show you that part of Hollywood. Yeah, it was fabulous, and I've also watched your television series, and it's it's tons of fun. A little mischievous, which knowing you is one hundred percent Maine, and uh, <laughs> my wife and I really really watched it, and then we're like, man, how can we never heard of this when it was on? Because I think we had to, I think we bought it through Amazon or Amazon Prime or something. Oh wow! Anyway. Well, well, thank you yeah. for doing that. Yeah, of course. Um, that was fun. That was a fun thing to do, and and uh, don't trust anyone. It certainly is an interesting, you know experience as a magician and i'm just going to do a quick plug here uh i have a shark week special coming up for discovery channel shark week so that's gonna more details about that will come but you might get a kick out of that very different than what i did with don't trust andrew main how fun is that shark Shark week wow yeah well that'll be that'll be huge i know shark week every year is is big um i've always loved you know, what, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I never imagined I would be mm-hmm. a writer, and I've always loved sharks. Um, and when I was working on my second novel back maybe, I guess, 10 or 12 years ago, I was reading a book on sharks to my 8-year-old daughter at the time, and it mentioned that sharks have this scientifically proven sixth sense. They have this extra um, organ called the... Um, Ampullae of Lorenzini, and it's, it's mm-hmm. where it's like in their nose. And so when they go through the water, waving back and forth, it's almost like a metal detector detecting the electronic impulse of in the brains and uh, uh, and muscle twitches of a fish. Just so crazy. I mean, I'm like that is bizarre. But they can even identify fish under three inches of of sand through this this special sense. And so I was like, when I read that, I was like. Oh, I have to use that in my book. And so it became my, – my whole book was about this um, copy, copying this ability so that people could actually see through soil and, and not see with their eyes but identify people like hiding in caves and stuff like that. So it was this technology that the U.S. was going to use based on sharks. And so anyway, my sharks have a special place in my heart. I'll have to check out Shark Week for sure this year. I, I think you're going to love – you might love this special because we deal with a lot of that. I'm not allowed to talk about what exactly I'm doing yet, but if you're into shark senses and how they work and whatnot and want to see some kind of a interesting uh, – I can't say anymore, but yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> no, that sounds good. Actually, 
I got to spend some time with some shark scientists and be up close with sharks while they're explaining to me what was going on and what they're doing. And, yeah. and, uh, very cool. And, uh, actually, uh, I just, I'm going to be appearing on cash cab. And I think some of the questions that I'm asking relate to that. So fun times. Now, have you found, um, over the course of years of, of writing novels that the research has been something that you've found intriguing? I've found over the years, I've met the most, some of the most interesting people doing research for my books. Oh, for sure. You know, I was, I was lucky that as a kid, I grew up in a family of cops. My father was a federal agent. My brother is now in the FBI. And so I, I started from a point where what was normal to me was that sort of stuff. And so when I started writing, I had this sort of background in both magic and police work. But as I started to expand and wanted to write about larger topics, that's when I needed to get into doing more research and going outside of my fields of what I was familiar with. And it's been it's been wonderful because, you know, when you when you go do like what I just did, you know, shooting the Shark Week special – you meet such amazing personalities. Now, those are the people you expect to meet, and those are the people you don't expect to meet. And then, uh, you know, you, you never know. And then I had with my Theo Cray novels, which starts with The Naturalist, which is about a scientist on the hunt for serial killers. I took a lot of topics I was interested in and had a little bit of knowledge on it and wrote about it. But then when I wanted to get the sequels, I wanted to expand on that. And then I decided, you know what, maybe I need to learn more about this. And it's funny, like, I just... I'm just in the process of finishing up uh, a course on Python and machine learning, partially to make the books better, but partially because I knew I had a little nascent interest in this. And as I started to follow that path, it grew and grew. And I'm like, man, I don't know if this is even for a book, but I'm fascinated by this. And I got back into diving because of my shark week, and that's actually related to my books. And then I had a book involving a character to that, so I need to do more of that. It is – you never know where those paths can take you, and it can make your lives a lot more interesting. Yeah, a lot of the most interesting things for me have been those serendipitous things. Like you mentioned, some people you expect to see or expect to meet, and then there are those kind of peripheral things that just kind of pop up. And I've found that those are, uh, you know, if you if you pursue those, sometimes you just get the most interesting stories from it. Um, I was uh, I was doing some research at the NSA's museum. They have like a code museum that's open to the mm-hmm. public. And so I went there, and I was looking around, and this older gentleman was sort of, you know, watching me. And I told him, ah, I'm a novelist. I'm doing research. And he's like, I worked for the NSA for 35 years. He starts telling me all these stories about oh, working, wow. working for the NSA. I'm like, oh, could I have your phone number? It's like, yes, but I'll have to kill you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, it. It's 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 absolutely crazy. Like I I had the opportunity to meet Story Musgrove, who is uh, an amazing astronaut. He was the guy that fixed the Hubble. He's got degrees in medicine, physics, all sorts of amazing. This guy, if he were in a movie, you wouldn't believe he's a real person because you couldn't think anybody like that could be that accomplished. And then you talk to him, he is the most down to earth person I'd ever met. And later on, when I went to go write books about space and my, my series that deals with that, Station Breaker and Orbital, et cetera, you know, I used some elements that I remember from conversations from him, and that came back in a wonderful way was I got an email from an, uh, from an astronaut who had been on ISS and shuttle missions who confident me for the details that I had in there and getting it right. And, and part of that I owe to the fact was long ago having a discussion with an astronaut who gave me a great frame of reference to understand some things like, you know, you don't walk into a room. You know, you don't have workstations. You strap yourself in front of a laptop. These little things about, right. you know, you don't think about when you think about space or whatever. And that can come from anything, conversations with anybody about anything. There's a lot like, you know, my brother being an FBI agent, a lot of his work is all this bureaucratic nonsense, mileage forms, forms for how many phone calls you made, all this other stuff. And when you worry or wonder, like, why can't they get the bad guys? It's like, uh, it's because there's some bureaucrat pushing another form at them. Yeah, yeah. They have to follow through on. So these things, you never know where they come from, but they're very interesting. I think it's interesting talking about um, stories and storytelling and writing, this idea of keeping your eyes open. 
like uh, for you, everywhere you go, you're um, you're noticing stuff. Maybe maybe it's for a new um, magical effect that you're going to work on, or you keep your eyes open. And I know you've written on how to overcome writer's block, and and um, you have some other materials on creativity. But do you see that as one of the aspects of living a creative life? Is that idea of always trying to keep your eyes open? Sure, but, you know, I'd, I'd even add on to that, and that is ask other people how they see things. And mm, nice. that has been extremely helpful because, you know, we, we notice what we're trained to notice. You know, we're, we have our own pattern recognition biases. And, but when you're with somebody, like if you're talking to the guy at the NSA who's had experience there, I bet if you sat down with him at a restaurant and said, what do you notice about the room? What's interesting about what's going on here? He's going to bring up details and tell you things that, are you, you as a writer might have very descriptive, and I'm, I'm going to make a generality of it. You're very yeah, intelligent. Yeah, yeah. You have much deeper understandings. But as a atypical, as a typical writer, rather, somebody would maybe have like, oh, I'm going to notice the way people are dressed, this, 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 or this, or this. You know, somebody who's an experienced, you know, and, and it depends on what their experience is in intelligence or many different fields there. He might have entirely different observations about, you know, why are there this many people this time? Are these businessmen? Are these people who are meeting more, you know, like other kinds of observations that, Theory of mind is, you know, how you understand how somebody else sees the world, and it is an extremely powerful tool as a writer. I write a lot in a first-person point of view, and sometimes, you know, it can be as a woman, sometimes with a person with a very different background than myself. And the only way I'm able to do this with any competence, if there is any at all, is having spoken to other people and said, how do you see this? What's going on? Yeah, I like it. That's, um, you know... Uh... When you think about talking or writing in first person, um, you really have to step into someone, not just their shoes, but into their head. You have to, um, you know, be able to see and interpret um, the world through their eyes. And, you know, I've done the same where I've written in first person from a teenage girl's point of view and from a, you know, a a serial killer's point of view (laughs) and an FBI agent's point of view. Yeah. Let me ask you a question then. So, you know, I, I find that I'm able to write in points of view of people that I know or I've met or I can make an amalgamation of that. I don't know that I could convincingly write in a teenage girl's point of view because I don't have enough of an understanding of the mindset between the difference between an 11 year old or a 13 year old. Did being a parent help you with that? I would, I would say it did. You know, um, we raised, you know, three daughters and um, I can't remember if you've ever met up with them, but. They're a little older now. They're 18 and 21 and 23 or 24. I always forget. But but being around them, you, well, at least I, I kind of um, began to see things a little bit differently than I had, mm-hmm. you know, on my own. And And when I would write from, like, a teenage girl's point of view, I would just ask myself, you know, what would she naturally do or what would she naturally think or say? And... And very often, um, it, it's not just in a general sense of what would this, what would a girl anywhere, go, you know, say, but what would this specific character do or say? So if you have a character that breaks up with her, her boyfriend, you might say, well, what would she naturally do? She might change her status on Facebook or cry or call a friend or eat chocolate or go for some retail therapy or whatever it is. And so you you see all of these different reactions as a parent you know, or as an observer, as a storyteller, and then you interpret those for the story that you're working on. And um, I don't know that there's, uh, you know, when you asked, I was trying to think if there's a specific example if I can think of, you know, from my books. Once in a while I would use something where my daughters uh, said or did something, but I would typically change it so that it it didn't seem like Mm -hmm. it was, you know, so much specific from them. You know, I had a, in my, my Jessica Blackwood novels, um, that's about a woman in the FBI from a family of stage magicians. And um, I've got, and the reaction to those has been very, very heartening. I mean, it's been, you know, that was, that series got the Edgar nomination and a thriller. And I've had a number of women who told me they really like the character. Oh, and yeah. my editor on that, she was, she was originally thought that I was a woman writing using a man's name kind of thing. Oh, wow. And then if, but if you meet me, you wouldn't really think that I'm a person that would probably write, you know, as a, a first-person point of view of a woman. And I've been asked how I do that, and 
And the, the short answer is, like, I'm not writing Bridget Jones, Bridget Jones' diary. Like, I could not write a book that's first primarily about the life of what it is to be a woman. I could never – I couldn't write that book. I don't have that right. experience to write that book. I could write about a person, you know, and then I could take a number of people I know, women who've dealt with various situations, and I could say, how would they have handled this? What is their experience? And the joke I used to make is I take every argument I ever had with a girlfriend and then realize after the fact, oh, my God, this is what she meant. You know, and, <laughs> and that sort of was, was my tool there is I said, okay, I'm not going to try to write, hey, ladies, let me tell you how to, you know, how you think. I have no idea. I, but I assume yeah. people think like people, and then sometimes there are different things that affect that. So I chose a very narrow thing to sort of try to approach, and that was helpful, but – you know, I, I, the idea of like trying to write, you know, from the point of view of a of a of a twelve year old girl terrifies me because it's like <laughs> until my nieces get older, you know, and I go hang out and find out what their life is like, it would be probably comically bad. <laughs> well, uh, I think as we create um, a wider variety of characters over the years, you start to realize that um, it isn't so much. Uh, uh, you know, when I was, when I've done children's point of views, I've I've written it not so much trying to think down to what this this kid you know might say or do from an d- adult perspective, but just try to climb into their minds. One of the characters in in one of my stories was a was a girl who grew up as um as a star in Hollywood, kind of like in the Sixth Sense with the little boy who was. Mm-hmm. Who became you know a star? So anyway, so she had this Haley Joel Osment, yeah, yeah. So she had this um, this background in that, but but um, but she was terrified of being in these movies that she was in. Um, and so you know, this is how did how would you act if you were a kid who was scared? Now I was a kid, and I got scared in different times. So I could step into and write from that 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 it was a girl that didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think that mattered so much, but. Um, but she was in these situations where basically she was told you have to be in this scene. And then, <laughs> you know, how much of of it when you have a kid, is it acting and how much of it is just, you know, that they're truly terrified in this situation? And is it really child abuse? You know, and you start to think about some of the stuff that that um, kids are asked to act in. And so anyway, so that was all intriguing to me. And yeah. so I said, I'm a kid. I'm eight or ten or whatever it is, and I'm scared. How do I do it? And um, I just tried to think through. Yeah, I, I think, and I think that these things. I, I think that as writing, it's very important for us to try these different ways to try to get inside the heads of others and understand. It does not then mean that, and you and I understand, it doesn't mean that we actually know what that kind of person's experience or what his life. And that's what yeah. I've always tried to make make that very clear: is that there's a difference between trying to write somebody sympathetically and then writing somebody sympathetically and then assuming, well, therefore I understand how people who are in these situations feel or think. And I, you know, I, I would never feel that way. And I always try to be very cautious about that because, you know, it can be sensitive because some people, particularly now there's a lot of, you know, conversations about how think people are represented, you know, and, how <laughs> yeah. somebody. And, and, and I, and I think that, let me, let me see if this works for you. Like, I think a good test that I, I try when I create a character that is different from me, and I respect and I like, and they're the protagonist. Ideally, if I was in a room with this person, we would probably disagree on a number of issues. Yeah. And that's a bit of, that's my litmus test. Like, have I created a character or is it a sock puppet? And I read a lot of books where this is just a sock puppet for this author's opinions and points of view. And now they're trying to put it in the point of view of a character that's radically different from their own to make it I like more it. Sound yeah, good. no, that's good. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, um, there's this one character in, in my books who's a vegan, and I have nothing against vegans. I was vegetarian for a while, but I'm not a vegan at this point or anything. But anyway, so she makes these arguments for being a vegan, and this one reader kept writing to me. He's like, why are you trying to tell me I should be a vegan? I'm like, I'm not. This character is vegan. Like, what are you even talking about? So, But it, it was so yeah. funny because – and um, and so three people that I know of became vegans because of reading – this girl's argument wow. in the books about becoming vegan. So, yeah, it's fun. Well, that's that's that that's. I mean, that's great. That's. I mean, that. I think. I mean, I'm not a vegan, but I'm saying it's great as a writer to know that you are able to convincingly present a point of view. I mean, that there's that. You know, they describe that as kind of like a Turing test for like different points of view, and all oh, too yeah. often 
we have this very straw man point of view on how other somebody else thinks who's different from ourselves. But if you can accurately do that and be persuasive, I think that's great. And that that's that's something I, I certainly, you know, I, I think I've been lucky that, like, you know, my own views and a lot of things are sort of not – some of you might say there's a lot of it's there. I mean, I but I think some of my other stuff is – not there because I don't want them to be there. You know, I, I don't want you to read a book line and think that I'm giving you a political screed or I'm trying to make sure tell you about the state of the world. Um, I want you to write a book, read a book, and read about a point of view from a person who may sh- share that opinion. But then read a different book and hear a different point of view. You know, I just want to entertain people. Absolutely. Um, and I think you, I mean, you are an entertainer, not just in the, the stories that you write, but also in the programs that you've done as a, as a, an entertainer, as an illusionist and a magician and so on. And, you know, wh- when I mentioned earlier how creative you are, I'm, I mean that as a great compliment because I've met a lot of creative people over the years, but, but very few who can have such different bents and be so successful in them. I was curious a little bit if you had some insights for the rest of us on on creativity and how to tap into that, um, because I feel like you know most of us have great potential to think in new ways or be creative in new ways, but maybe we're not doing that. And maybe there are some specific steps we could take to really be more open to that. You know, uh, it, it's, I'm happy to share what works for me, and, and I want to put it, the caveats there that, you know, when I would start trying to read about the methods of other writers, I would sometimes be frustrated because I would have a totally different, you know, it wouldn't work for me. And, and I think that anybody out there, you should understand that you, you've got to try a bunch of different things and find out what works for you. And when you hear somebody who you like say, this is the way I do it, and you try it and it doesn't work for you, you shouldn't be like, well, I guess I'm not going to be a writer. So well, let me be very clear on that. I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk about what's worked well for me. And I'm, I'm a person that is both very, very analytical, but I also like storytelling. I like freeform creativity. I like to do things that are unstructured. I like structure, and then I don't like structure. And I you know, very much spent most of my life in the arts as an entertainer. But I have a deep passion for science and engineering, and so these things don't aren't don't, they're not at opposite extremes to me. And I think some of my favorite scientists loved art, and some of my favorite artists loved science, and they understood the balance between them. So when I try to tackle anything, whether it's uh, writing a book, or you know, I've been making you know, I've done some computer coding. So I have a project called AuthorPage.com, which is I you know, it's free websites for authors. It's just was a side project I created because I know a lot of authors don't have web pages as nice as yours, Stephen. And so I said, let me create this thing, but first let me learn how to do this. And then I've, I've made tools for doing voice dictation stuff and things like this, which involved me sitting down and having to learn how to computer code and do stuff like this. I'm literally in the middle of learning, you know, like I mentioned Python and machine learning. But these things all, they come from the same sort of approach to writing a novel, which is creative, and that is First, identify a goal, you know, a goal or a problem. What am I trying to do? If I'm trying to write a novel, I say, okay, I'm trying to write a novel. This is what I want to do. If I want to write a program, I say, this is a program. What do I want to do? If it's a novel, I'm like, okay, well, I want it to be fiction, of course. I'm like, is there, is there an area of interest that appeals to me, something that I want to spend, you know, 100 hours writing in? And I start from there. I'm like, oh, you know, I like thrillers. These are topics I like. My Theo Cray story came from, man, like, I love computational biology. I love deep data. I love this these are topics that would put people to sleep who don't care about it. So how do I make this accessible? And I love science. I love, I love the process of discovery, of testing things and all this. And, and I said, I love mysteries. And so I took these things that I loved, and then one of the things I do to find a topic is, you know, you're from the Venn diagram where two circles are more than where they intersect. And there's sure. things that Andrew loves and would love to write about, and then the other one is what people might want to read that looks at that <laughs> intersection. And, you know, and anything well-told people might want to read, and it's also what I'm capable of writing, too. I've tried to write books like, you know, hard, hardcore military, technical sort of stuff, and I just got bored trying to figure out the differences between different classes of Chinese submarines. But the point is, is I start with things I want to be, I want to do. What is my goal? My goal is I want to write a story about blank. You know, why did I choose this? I chose this because these are things I'm interested in, and these are things I think people may want to read. And that's a very commercial approach. Let me make that clear. Yeah. It might be something that's very passionate somebody that's going to be great literature. Do that if that's what your passion is. And, and I made the decision, I just want to write good books that people want to read and maybe have a chance of making money. So, you know, I, I have no problem admitting that. So I start with that. 
what I want to do, what's interesting, what there might be, and then I take it as the goal. Goal is a book. What's a book? To me, it's a beginning, middle, and end. You know, there's a conflict, there's a resolution. And then my formula is very simple. I need a good conflict, I need a good character, and I need a resolution. And I don't start to write a book unless I know what the conflict is going to be. I don't start the book unless I have a strong idea of who this character is. Now, that character will change throughout the book, not just in the arc, but the more time you spend with them, the more you're going to understand the peculiarities, the more you'll understand how to make their motivations clear, whatever. But if I have a good conflict and a good character, then what I do, and again, this is my approach. It can be different for everybody. Again, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm sitting here in my smoking jacket and pipe telling you, you know, let me tell you how I, you know, or how you should do it. And so from there, I break it down into a series of steps. I know a story needs to have a character conflict resolution. My story has a beginning and an end. I know there's a start to the story. I know it's got to end at some point. I know there's a beginning and there's an end. And then there's everything else that happens in the middle. And I, I will, when I first started writing, I used note cards. And I've actually taught this in some of my uh, the online videos where I talk about, like, don't, I don't note card out the scenes. I note card out the beats. Scenes can be somewhat arbitrary. Or, and I use the word scenes often instead of chapters because that's the way I think of a, a chapter for me is often a scene. But it doesn't have to be. You read right. J.K. Rowling, you know, each chapter is basically part of the school year. And so that's. It's a decision I made, but you can have a totally different reason and different explanation for what you want to do. So I break it down into beats, and I look at those beats, and I organize that. I, I break things down in a very analytical point of way, and then uh, my story starts to emerge. I fill in the details. It's, I'm asking myself, then what happens? Then what happens? Then what happens? Every chapter, what's the conflict? What's the resolution? Conflict, resolution. And for some people, that might be way too reductive. It might be way too of an analytical approach towards it. It works wonderfully for me. It works yeah. wonderfully for me. So, and, I, and it's very fast too. I, books come together very quickly for me because of that. So, uh, you've, you've, that was a very long-winded explanation. I no, it's a good explanation. Um, you've done a book on how to write a novella in 24 hours. Now, that seems mm-hmm. to me insane. Um, is this is this process a big part of that approach, or do you have some additional things to basically make people think? Uh, at a caffeine pace for 24 hours in order to pull it off because I don't think I could do it. Well, so the, you know, the average, I think the average experienced writer probably has no problem writing like 1,500 words per hour. And then we're not talking like typing speeds are much faster, but, you know, creating and typing speeds are much different. And I think people get hung up on the difference between that. So if you, know, if you can write 1,500 words in an hour and a novella is 15,000 words, you know, you spend 10, 12 hours at the keyboard, you can write a novella, you know. Um, you don't have to be, you know, the difference is, is knowing what the heck you're going to write. And I've noticed that when I have periods where I sit down to go write and I'm dragging it out. Now, the problem is, is that when you're an experienced writer, you can be blocked but not realize it because you're still writing. You know, you don't feel like you're blocked because you're writing, 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 because you can you can just fill that page up. So I had to – every time I write a book, I would get analytical about the process. When something went well, I said, why did this work well? When something didn't, I would I'd try to figure that out because I got frustrated when I would go listen to great writers talk and, like, writer's block would come up, and I would go, like, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, yeah. which – Sounded almost like baseball players and they're trying to be very superstitious. Um, and, and, and I kind of would argue that, like, well, if you had to take 30% of your novel away or reduce, get cut out 30% of your book to make it publishable, you had writer's block. You kept writing, which you didn't know that you were blocked because you, your story wasn't happening the way it wanted to. So my, my sort of approach towards these things is when I want to write a lot, if I need to, if I got to do a marathon session, I need to figure things out before I sit down in front of the word processor. You know, if you open up Photoshop and you're like, oh, I'm going to make a poster, well, it'd be dumb because unless, you know, because one, you know, Photoshop is a tool for basically you want to do composition in there ideally, right? You know, which means you need to start with a bunch of things. And I've watched this happen. Like, if you want to create a website, like Squarespace is this really great, easy to use website for creating stuff. But you tell people to go to Squarespace, they sit there and stare at the screen because Squarespace is very dependent upon you having a ton of images, and if you're sitting down to make a website and you don't have a folder full of photographs and a bunch of text to go put into there, having a layout device doesn't help you. And the same yeah. as a word processor. Sitting in front of a word processor to go write a book doesn't help you if you don't know what the heck you're going to write. 
and not in a broad sense, but in a specific sense. If you don't know what this chapter is about, if you don't know who's in the chapter and what's going to happen, you can stare at the screen and think it up. But to me, that's the worst place to try to do it. And I think a lot of writing for me happens when I'm away from the word processor. I'm making little notes or I, I will go get a massage for like two hours and just sit there thinking about the plot of the story, the beginning, middle and end. And then once I've done with that, that's often how I start, you know, my stories. I get a foot massage, you know, spend some time <laughs> there thinking about this. And then I get a bunch of ideas. So and that's when you're most passionate about writing. It's because your head is filled with these things. If you have too broad of a topic and you don't know how to break it down and you sit in front of the word processor, it's painful. It's painful. So I've tried to make it very clear to myself, how much do I have here to write? Do I have enough right now to sit down and write? Or do I need to sit down and write a little more detailed outline? And sometimes not all, all outlines are the same. And the best outline for me is this sort of conflict resolution sort of twist part where I say, how does this scene start? What is the conflict in the scene? Oh, this is the conflict. I'm going to set this thing up there. Well, what's going to happen? Well, gosh, this character's going to, and it becomes almost like a game. Well, this character's going to say this. Well, this character's going to say this. Well, my character's got this objective. This other person's got their objective. And it flows, and it's worked out wonderfully for me. And then if you do that, you have a strong enough outline or a very clear idea of what you're trying to do, you'd be surprised at how, you know, how quickly you can put things down. But it doesn't matter if you write a book in a week or three years or ten years. It matters if you're enjoying the process and you're happy with the outcome. That's all that matters. Yeah. Unless you're trying yeah. to pay bills. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're trying to pay bills. It's it's so interesting for me to be able to ask people who have different approaches, you know, how do you actually go about this? Because I'm very organic, and I think – I can't remember if we've ever talked about this. Of course, I don't do an outline at all. Uh, I've mm-hmm. never known how a book that I've started will end. And so it's uh, – the writing process for me is, is also is a process of discovery. Um, and so it's really, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me um, because a lot of the stuff that you talk about, I do as I write instead of beforehand, thinking about conflict, thinking about what the what the twists might be, and and um, as long as you mention the twist, let me ask you this: a lot of people will talk about. Um, you know, misdirection when you're talking about magic or illusions. Do you mm-hmm. do you think that the misdirection is also maybe something that you've been able to bring from that background into writing your stories or writing your novels? You know, in, in magic, there's sort of a saying that obf- obfuscation is not the same as misdirection. And oh, okay. Obfuscation sure. can be making things, things too complicated or too this and a, and, a poor, and a bad magician, you know, you know, will come up with a trick that's like, ah, therefore I fooled you. It's like, well, maybe technically because it was too damn confusing kind of thing. And I think that <laughs> in, in a, you know, and there are different kinds of mysteries and thrillers. And I don't, you know, I don't write ones where necessarily all the clues are right there for you to be able to figure it out. You know, I often have, hey, there's this thing here. But I do write stuff where, in my pick of my Theo Cray books, he's very good at solving certain kinds of crimes, but he's very oblivious to other things in there. And, and, you know, I've had other people who've read them and reread them and realized, oh, wait, there's this other thing that's happening, but he had no idea. I'm like, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, the, 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 the pro and con of what he does. So I, I like to set those kinds of things up a little bit to a degree, kind of like secondary narratives that are maybe not quite apparent. And, you know, but good magic is good storytelling, you know. Mm-hmm create a conflict. You know, the magician, you know, reaches into his pocket, shows that his pocket's empty, closes his pocket, and, you know, realizes that, you know, he needs change, reaches into his pocket again, pulls out the change and has the change. Now, there's a conflict. He needs change. Problem is, you know, the pocket's empty. What's the resolution? We'll introduce magic. It's probably a horrible example, but the point is, is that a really good magic trick introduces his story. And, And the best magician, the best storyteller in magic, oddly enough, would probably be Teller from Ten and Teller, who performs as a mime. He doesn't speak, but he creates these conflicts very visually. You see the problem. You see what he's trying to do, and you're aware of that. And So you can apply that. I think a good structured magic trick is like a good structured movie, like a good structured novel. There's engagement and magic. You know know the resolution is always going to involve a miracle. A miracle is going to happen. And in good storytelling about magic, there can be a price. There can be uh, uh, something that either it's you know a price magic takes or something you have to do to obtain this or whatever. So there can be a lot of similarities. Yeah, even in a mystery. Yeah. So. Obfuscation. But I want to go back to the process there. Though. I, I want to go back up. So you say so you're yeah. you're. I used to be a guy who never used an outline. Let me start there. I used to be never use an outline to sort of write. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and 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 I, I came over and I used to hate outlining, hated outlining. Um, you're an extremely productive writer, so you write considerably. Do you? How much of your process do you do you find you have to go back and redo, rewrite, etc.? And is that something you enjoy because you're a sadist? <laughs> well, most of my books have been so complex that I don't even think now you could go back and outline them, like having written them. Like I would be lost as trying to figure out. Uh, in one, there were 54 named characters, 10 point of views, and, and it's just mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how you would try to outline that. And so for me, the, the big um, – instead of an outline, I really look at the context. So as I'm writing, mm-hmm. I'm always asking myself, what do readers want? What are they worried about? What are they expecting? What are they hoping for? And so I'm, my goal is to give readers what they want or something better. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to include a twist or in, in enhance the believability. And so I'm constantly asking myself these questions as I write, as I work on a scene. And I don't go through an entire book and write like one draft and then go back and rewrite the whole book. As I move forward through the book, I'm revising previous kind of scenes or chapters mm-hmm. um, as I move forward. And so, so for example, I might once a week I might print out the whole book and just start at the beginning, just reading it, thinking about, okay, what's happening? Where can things go? What could the twist be? All of these questions are going through my mind. And then I come to the new material. And it is, it's never uh, for me like what you, people say, writing by the seat of your pants or writing with mm-hmm. – it's not writing by the seat of my pants because I understand okay. story. And I understand what, you, what the very aspects you were talking about, conflict and resolution and character development, character arcs and – and all of those things. So I think that the more that you understand really what lies at the heart of a great story, the less you really need to worry about writing by the seat of your pants or anything like that. So there's always – I always have more ideas than I can do in that writing period for that day. And so I keep a list of other questions that I might have, um, other reminders just to remind myself if there are so many characters that I need to keep track of what they're pursuing and – and so, yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's no. a really interesting process of discovery for me, and and uh, and I I sometimes well, will. Oh, go ahead. Well, I say I say like with, oh, I just want to add a thing. I find that in every single book I've done, I get to seventy percent through my outline, and the last thirty percent changes. The last thirty percent changes because of the the details and things added on. I I think that our writing process are actually a little bit similar in the sense that there it sounds like. You know where I, I, I think because it feels to me kind of like because like your your process what you, you did it sort of feels to me a lot like that's a lot like yeah I want to how I do it I do my structure my outline and write my scene breakdowns and stuff kind of going through that sort of process but like once I sit down man to write that book I do not look back I do not look back <laughs> yeah I've talked to a lot of different authors and some are really committed to one you know, uh, approach or another. I know Jeffrey Deaver writes between one to 200 page single space outlines for his novels and mm-hmm. then goes back and builds it. And I just sit here and I think, ah, shoot me in the head. I could never do that. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, and, and I think it's, it's very helpful for people to hear us talking about different approaches because that's the thing is you got to find what works for you. And I, I love, you know, I, I, people ask me how much I write each day and the answer is like, you know, the, 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 the modal number would be like zero, <laughs> you know, um, cause then when it's time for you to write a book, I sp- sit down, I spend a few days, maybe a week or so on an outline. And then I spend a week writing and then I'm done with my first draft, you know? So yeah. it's like, I, I try to can put all of that into some sort of one compact time period to when I do it, because my life is very unpredictable. I had to go shoot this special for discovery channel. I had to deliver a book before that in the middle of pre I've had that twice in pre-production where all of a sudden I pitched an idea. I don't hear back. I sign a book contract. And then all of a sudden I have a due date for this. And then I hear, yes, you've got to go into production. So I've got to condense everything to, to me, sort of a short period of time, um, which works great if you're me, because then I could tell, Hey, I've got two weeks. I'm going to go write this. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to go to work. I don't have to go to work. I'm going to sit in front of my computer. I'm going to do this. But that's not a practical solution for everybody. And I think that's why it's helpful to just hear different approaches. Yeah, it is. Um, I am not as fast of a writer as you um, or as as other 
as some of my other friends are, but but um, but for me, it's just uh, I've tried just about everything out there, and I'm like I still do a book a year, so um, maybe two in some cases, but um, but I just don't know how people can <laughs> pump out books well, back I, on that. But I, I mean, it comes from a different. I mean, it, it, it's it's a very when I was a when I was a kid, we had a friend of the family, Jeffrey Wallman, who's now teaches writing. Jeff is great. Jeff was a guy who would write a book a month because Jeff would be doing these like Lone Star novels and these sort of like you know the the, the thing in the grocery store, you know the, the 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 cheap paperbacks you'd see, the very the romances and all this. And I remember as a kid hearing the fact that he could write a book a month, and my 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 brain just could not comprehend it. Yeah. And then when you, you know, he would tell you, well, you know, if you read the book, you understand why it's a book a month. It's just, it's a, it's a thing that's just sort of this quickie formula kind of sort of thing to get there. But then it, it but it, it sort of kind of got me thinking about like, you can have a different pace and it's not, doesn't reflect upon the quality, you know, Charles Dickens could write extremely fast. You know, yeah. there are other novelists that take 20 years to write a book and it's an amazing book. And it, and it doesn't, and it also, most important is, are you enjoying the process? Are you yeah. enjoying the process? Yeah. And I and I sometimes when I've I've had I've had I've had to write some books like in only a week, like literally at a week from blank page to finished novel. And it was certainly fun and satisfying to say, "Hey, I did this." But was that my favorite way to write? <laughs> no, oh my no, not at all. Yeah. But I think anybody could do that. I think I think I know you absolutely could do that if you you know if you were put in a situation where it had to get done, it would be get done. But you might have to make a bunch of choices there that you're not comfortable making. Interesting. I don't know. You have more confidence in me than I do. <laughs> but before we before we even – this has been a great conversation. I can't believe our time is going uh, so quickly. But I'd love for you to tell us about your latest thriller, Looking Glass. Um, that's the newest one, isn't it? Yeah, so that's my my latest Theo Cray novel. So I created, you know, I, I created a character called Theo Cray, which I mentioned before, and he's a scientist because I love science. I've always loved the process of science. I love biology. I love all this. I love how scientists think, and I've been very lucky to have met a number of scientists. And I wanted to sort of take sort of the way and some really, you know, really cool people who look at the world in a way that was different than what I did, but then helped me see the world in a different you know, point of view. And I wanted to write a story about that. I wanted to write a story about a scientist taken out of his academic environment and forced to use his skills in a very different case. And so in the first book, The Naturalist, was Theo Cray is pulled out of his sort of research world and into the middle of a murder investigation that he has a personal connection to. And he's data scientist. He's a guy that's good at looking at large amounts of data and looking for patterns. And it became a very interesting sort of, you know, you want to have every, in a mystery, every detective, you want to get their own sort of gimmick sort of thing. And it became a kind of a cool gimmick for that. So The Naturalist was a book that I didn't, I didn't know if there was going to be an audience for this other than myself. When I did that Venn diagram of what are about a computational <laughs> biologist, you know, who solves crimes. How many people want to read this? Um, I didn't know how big of an intersection there would be. And it turned out that it is, it's been, the book has been phenomenally well received, you know, by people. I mean, from my point of view, like it's been, it's been the, it's been exciting to see how many other people, even people who have no interest in science have loved this character and loved the story. And so that book sold well over like a hundred thousand copies, which is great. But then all of a sudden, how do you follow that book up? <laughs> right. This is the sequel. And, and and that is, you know, as you know, when you have a book that people like, I went through this with my first Jessica Blackwood book, which was Angel Killer. You know, I was nervous, like, how do I follow this book up? And I was very nervous about that because, you know, and you have to sort of break down and say, what do people like? And I think a mistake people make is often they get too fixated on plot and they try to recreate the plot. No, it's the character. People love the character. They want to see this character in a different story, in a different situation, yeah. and see them do things maybe a little bit differently, you know? And that was helpful. And that's what I did with Jessica Blackwood in that second book in the series. That's when they got me the International Thriller Awards nomination. Uh, and then the third one's the one that got the Edgar nomination. So I knew, take the character, let them grow a bit, create a good plot, but really put your energy into the character and having them grow and be just as interesting as before. So... For Looking Glass, I said, okay, Theo Cray starts off naturalist. You know, he gets his ass kicked. He's way over his head. 
Now, at the end of that book, he's a little more confident, so now I'm going to put him into a new story. Well, you know, what happens when you're a little bit confident? You probably become a little overconfident. You know, what happens (laughs) when you're good at something? Other people know you're good at this. You get asked to do this sort of thing. And so I said, these already – now I've already created some inherent conflicts he has to deal with that he's totally unaware of. And I started looking glass from that point of view. Now this guy is you know, famous, infamous in some ways for being a serial killer hunter. Now he's thrown into a new situation, and how is he going to handle this? And it's you know, starting from that point of view of what's next for somebody after they've sort of that. So you know, Naturalist is sort of the Batman Begins. You know, Looking Glass is sort of my Dark Knight. Not really. I mean, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> no. I've set the yeah. universe, and now what happens next? That's great, and um, I, it's already been will, really well received, um, and uh, and I look forward to you know checking it out. Um, what would you say when you think about the Venn diagram and what it is that drew you to this story? Besides just this character that people were intrigued by, when you started to think about his his new challenges, you know what was mm-hmm. it that really drew you to this drew you to this story? You know, one of the things that it was interesting to me and, and was having somebody who is a very analytical person who has to learn, has to sort of increase his ability to have empathy, to hmm. understand what's going on. And, and, and Looking Glass deals a bit with getting involved in a case where nobody else thinks there's a case there because the victims are people who sort of fall outside of who – as a public as a whole, we sort of feel empathy for, you know, that we, we kind of casually dismiss. And, you know, there was a, a, a very disturbing case in, here in Los Angeles, which was for years was the Grim Sleeper. And the Grim Sleeper was this, maybe there was this serial killer operating in, you know, Compton, operating out of, you know, uh, you know, L.A. in some of the poor neighborhoods, some of these neighborhoods at a much higher crime rates. You know, and so it was this thing that went on for years and years and years. And, you know, the victims were predominantly or large part were prostitutes or people who were addicted to crack cocaine and who were drug addicts and whatnot. So it didn't get a lot of sympathy because these were people that in society were like, well, they made these choices. Well, if you look into the cases of these these poor women, you find out the yeah. way, this was not a lifestyle choice that, you know, they had a lot of options on. I mean, they were born into poverty, had a lot of problems, whatever. They fell into sort of the cracks and became victims of this guy who is now we know who it was, Lonnie David Franklin. Um, it was a case that went for years and years. And, and sometimes when you hear this, you know, well, what if it had been somebody wealthy? What if it had been somebody from a white suburb or whatever? And I think it's very clear in this case with the Grim Sleeper that we ignore, it was there. We talked about it. But, you know, people make dead, hook, dead hooker jokes. We treat some people as being less than other people. And I wanted to deal a, do a story that deals with uh, not, you know, and I was naturalist dealt with, you know, a number of the victims in there turned out to be women who were sort of marginalized in that way. Looking Glass kind of got in sort of a different category of victims that are sort of marginalized. And I wanted to kind of go for there. And, and for Theo, who's this very analytical person to solve this, he has to sort of develop his, you know, a bit of his empathy skills. He has to sort of understand, you know, what's going on in their world and why they're falling prey. Yeah, I think that empathy that you that you've identified in our culture the lack of empathy and and then to build these stories around it I think maybe that kind of helps open people's eyes hopefully um so that they you know they do look at others with with a different through a different lens after reading the stories I mean our goal is to entertain but if we can get people to open their eyes maybe and um and maybe start asking questions bigger questions I mean that's always it's always a plus. Well, and, and, and starting with myself. I mean, that's the thing is that when I when I write you know, these stories, that then I start to think about what's going on here, and then I look at like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't care. I didn't pay attention. I wasn't acknowledging this because nobody else around me thought it was important or whatever. And, and, and it starts with a lot of it just makes me very introspective. And and it's funny because, you know, I've had, you know, I, I've sometimes used Theo Craig some places as a, as a mouthpiece because he's a person that doesn't understand certain things like, you know, uh, as far as, you know, what's it like, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't quite understand, you know, my character, Jessica Blackwood's experiences. What's it like to be a woman in the workplace or in a very high testosterone workplace? Theo Cray would never consider it once it's put in front of him. And he says, Oh no, no, no. I see your point now. And that's, 
you know, that's kind of my goal is one. I put these things in front of me. I'm like, huh. And then if I can put it in front of the reader and say, hey, not saying here's a, this is, I'm not saying this is the state of the world or telling you what's wrong with the world or how to fix it, but here's a different lens to look through. Yeah, I think I've put it this way in my seminars. I'm not trying to tell you what to think, but I'm trying to help get you to think. And I love it when, when stories do that. I mean, to me, those are the most memorable kind of stories is when they actually bring up those issues and they're like, huh, I never quite thought of that before. That's really interesting. And I think, um, I think that's one of the aspects that really draws people to great stories and great storytelling. So. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I've enjoyed it myself as a writer, you know, thinking through these different lenses, and it certainly helped me. And if I get people to have a different, different, a different lens to look through, then great. Yeah, that's, that's super. So, um, Andrew, thanks so much for your time and for being a guest here today. I like the insights about creativity. I don't know that I could ever write a novella in 24 hours or even in a week, but, <laughs> but maybe I'll have to try some of your ideas out. Where's the best place for people online to connect with you or follow the progress of your shows and your books? Uh, if you go to my website, andrewmain.com, and then I'm on Twitter. If I'm not in the middle of writing or some other time-consuming project, I'm kind of active on there, and that's at Andrew Main. So andrewmain.com and then at Andrew Main are probably the best ways. I try to respond to people on Twitter. Like Twitter seems to be – it's easier for me to respond to a, a, a short question with a pithy response on Twitter. So sometimes I get active. And also when I have time, I'll do Periscope sessions, where which is a live uh, – just write live stream and talk to people. And I love to talk about writing and from what I've learned. And, and again, it, it's, you know, I think if something's working for you, then don't, don't, you don't need to change it, you know, but if you're <laughs> going to talk to somebody who's still figuring things out, then that's, that's what I am. I'm still on this journey trying to figure it out. That's fantastic. So we want everyone to check out your, your shows anytime that they can on television. And of course, look into your books yeah. like Looking Glass and the others. The one I think I have on my shelf here is Name of the Devil. That's a Jessica Blackwood novel. Oh, cool. So, so, um, so we want people to check those out. Uh, my books are at stephenjames.net. And also, we have a character conference coming up next fall. You can go to characterconference.com. David Corbett and Susan May Warren will be teaching with me in Atlanta. So the registration is now open for that. For more information about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And, of course, always our thanks go to Suspense Radio for helping to produce and to share our show. And, folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.